We'll hear argument now in number 91-1496, uh, Peter C. Ryder versus Langdon M. Cooper. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court is required in this case to reconcile two core commands of the Interstate Commerce Act. The first is that the carrier shall charge and collect only the filed tariff rate, and the second is that the carrier shall not charge or collect a rate that is unreasonable. In this case, petitioners who previously paid all that the carrier charged in order to ship goods have been ordered, in effect, to pay what they claim to be unreasonably high rates. Petitioners, on behalf of the entire but which shipping, was the filed rate? I'm sorry, Your Honor? But which was the filed rate? That was the filed rate, yes, Your Honor. Mm-hmm. One that uh, uh, petitioners take the position and argue in defense that it uh, was unreasonably high. Uh, petitioners, on behalf of the entire shipping industry, which faces claims similar to this one that amounts uh, in excess of billions of dollars, uh, urge the Court to reject the categorical approach proposed by the respondents and adopted by the Court of Appeals in much the same way that the Court rejected an all-or-nothing solution to this same problem two years ago in the Maisland decision. Instead, what the Court should do is to resolve, is to have these issues resolved on a case-by-case basis with the issue of the rate reasonableness decided by the Interstate Commerce Commission subject to judicial review of the Commission's exercise of primary jurisdiction. Is it your position that uh, even if the carrier filed, uh, charged the, uh, sent a bill for the filed rate, uh, and the carry and the shipper said the rate is unreasonable, uh, should that defense await a ruling by the... No, no, Justice White, that defense should not await a ruling. Uh, in that situation... Section 10743, separate provision, separate from the file rate doctrine, which is embodied in Section 10761A, specifically provides that the carrier has a right to insist upon payment at the time of the uh, movement of the goods. And that is the source of the, of the pay-first rule, which is essentially a rule that the Court has acknowledged in passing in a number of old cases. But that rule has a separate statutory basis. It's not inherent in the file rate doctrine. And therefore, our position is that if you insist on the payment, and even if the, even if the payment is too high in your judgment, you're obliged to follow that because Congress made a specific determination that that's the proper course to follow. In contrast, Justice White, in this case, where the payments were made in full and then additional sums were requested that the... Uh, that the, the negotiated was, rate was paid. The negotiated rate was paid, and then a subsequent request was made. Nothing in the statute specifically deals with that particular situation. And when you're in a no-man's land, then it seems to us a different set of rules ought to apply. But it was a rate, uh, it was a negotiated rate that the carrier had no uh, business charging. That's true. The carrier was acted unlawfully in charging that rate at the time. Didn't he should have filed those didn't, rates. Didn't the shipper also? No. If you the provision section 10761 and 10762 both provide that it is the carrier's duty to comply with the law. Certainly, the shipper has an interest, uh, and after Maislin has a, an interest that is quite significant in ensuring that the uh, uh, tariffs are in fact filed. Uh, but the duty itself clearly resides with the carrier under these circumstances. Well, Mr. Phillips, I guess the, the uh, shipper would have access to the public information to know whether the rate had been filed or not. It, it is true in a theoretical sense that the shipper has access, but I think it is, as a practical matter, quite unreasonable to expect the shipper to be able consistently to monitor changing tariff rates that can be implemented on 24 hours' notice 
when if you were to just look at the Carolina tariffs, they're six volumes long. They reference additional tariffs that are themselves three and four volumes long. We're talking about tariff filings that are in the nature of of thousands of pages, Justice O'Connor. May I ask whether your client was time-barred from seeking reparations at the time that uh, the respondents here first tried to collect the alleged undercharges? They, I Is think there a time-bar in effect? As to some portions, they would have been. Some of the earlier shipments, I think, would have been barred. Later shipments would not have been barred. So we're not in the more, I think, more typical situation where the trustee has brought the suit for undercharges uh, at a period in time when the, when the shippers are not permitted to seek reparations. And does the time bar affect the ability of, uh, under your position, to go back to the ICC for the reasonableness determination? A- absolutely, Justice O'Connor. That is this Court's decision in the United States versus Western Pacific, where the Court held that where the United States refused to pay and was sued for undercharges, and the uh, and the carriers, or the carrier in that case, just as the respondents in this case said, the way to do this is to pay the filed rate and seek reparations. And the court said, That's, you can't do that because uh, reparations are time barred. And in language that I think is strikingly appropriate uh, for this particular case, the court said to hold otherwise would require the court to condone a situation where the carrier is permitted uh, to obtain uh, unreasonable rates with impunity. And that is precisely the situation that we have here, because uh, everyone conceded uh, at the Court of Appeals level that if these rates turn out to be unreasonable, they are essentially lost because the carrier is insolvent and it's going to be impossible to recoup monies. Under those circumstances, what you have is a situation where the, the shipper's significant right under the statute not to be charged unreasonable rates is essentially vitiated uh, in favor of an unbending uh, absolute rule under the the filed rate doctrine, uh, which this Court has never held to be applicable in that particular way. Could the bankruptcy court uh, collect the full amount of the filed rate and just hold it until such time as you've had a reasonable opportunity to... The, the bankruptcy court, uh, I think there's no question the bankruptcy court would have that authority. The problem with that particular approach is, first of all, there's nothing in the Court of Appeals opinion that would authorize that because the Court of Appeals has categorically denied us the opportunity to stay uh, the payment, and there's nothing in any of the, any of the bankruptcy court or the Fourth Circuit's analysis that even envisions that kind of a procedure, so it's not really in the case. But second of all, in the, given the magnitude Uh, The undercharges that are at issue here, uh, it seems quite extraordinary to think about billions of dollars being placed in the registry when there is no serious reason to wonder whether, in fact, these charges are reasonable. In fact, the the, uh, more likely scenario is that these charges are quite unreasonable, having not been reviewed as they've increased over the period of time. And therefore, it seems to us the more appropriate course is if a carrier has reason to believe that a shipper will be unable to pay the filed rate if ultimately determined to be reasonable, then it seems to me the shipper, or excuse me, the carrier can come forward in either the bankruptcy court or before the ICC and seek to have some protection put in place. Well, right. just, just before you leave that point, it's not at all clear to me that a, a, a district court or bankruptcy court can alter uh, the priority of creditors uh, by, by an equitable subordination of liens that are otherwise equal. I mean, where, where's, where do you get that authority? Well, I don't, the question is whether you put it into the bankruptcy estate in the first instance. I agree with you. Once it gets into the bankrupt estate, it's clear that you can't 
modify how the creditors well, receive if, it. If bankruptcy courts could do this, they could have escrows all the time, which would basically alter the, the uh, provision of Cong the Congress has for the priority of creditors and for their equal and for their equal right to share in proceeds. But I think I don't what, see where this authority comes from. Well, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm happy to abandon the position that there's authority to do it. I would have been inclined to assume that, as an equitable matter, the uh, Bankruptcy court could, given that we don't know the legality, the underlying legality, and it's necessary to have the issue resolved by the Interstate Commerce Commission in the exercise of its primary jurisdiction. Well, you don't argue this in your brief, and there's no citation in the brief to support the bankruptcy court's authority to do this, is there? No, no, Your Honor, there is none. Mr. Phillips, as I, as I recall your, your brief, you, you, you ask that, that the, uh, what, what, what should happen is the bankruptcy court should refer this matter to the, uh, to the ICC? The, uh, any one of the courts would have been fine, but yes, Your Honor, since it was tried initially before the bankruptcy court, we thought the matter should have been referred to the What ICC authority does it have to refer it? I mean, I've heard of, uh, you know, where the doctrine of primary jurisdiction applies. I've heard of courts uh, staying proceedings until one of the parties had an opportunity to uh, 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 make use of an available proceeding before the ICC or the FCC or another agency, but I've never heard of a power in the court to direct an agency to make some determination. It may well be that we're simply employing a shorthand means of accomplishing precisely what you're describing, Justice Scalia. Uh, it's not so much that we care that the matter be specifically referred by any court to the ICC, but that we have an opportunity as shippers to have the right reasonableness determined well, initially by the ICC. Is there a proceeding before the ICC that would enable you to do that? I mean, is, is there a mechanism? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, there's interstate Whereby, commerce. if the court stays its hand, you can get this issue before the ICC. The Interstate Commerce Commission has a policy statement, Order 177 and 208, both of which say that they will entertain these kinds of claims and resolve the question of right reasonableness. And, in fact, in the Oneida case that was uh, recently decided by the Interstate Commerce Commission, that is precisely what they did do. They undertook to decide uh, the right reasonableness issue and, and went forward. So, you, so there, are, there is a mechanism, to be sure. Okay. Uh, let me just add uh, one uh, last idea or at least one set of concepts to the mix in this case. The, the one significant line of decisions from this Court that it seems to me uh, supports uh, the underlying uh, decision of the ICC to provide this relief is the uh, Interstate Commerce Commission versus American Trucking Association's case, where this court has upheld extraordinary uh, remedies uh, in situations where they were directly aimed at a particular problem that the statute otherwise does not remedy. And that is precisely uh, what this case is about, uh, because the Court of Appeals, however, has uh, taken a contrary view. Uh, its judgment should be reversed. I'd like to uh, uh, reserve the balance of my time, Mr. Chief Justice. Very well, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Mr. Draven. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question in this case is whether a court should refer to the ICC a shipper's defense that the filed rate is unreasonable in an undercharge action brought by an insolvent carrier. The answer to that question is yes for three reasons. First, referral is required to protect the ICC's primary jurisdiction over the reasonableness of rates. Second, referral is necessary to give the shipper an effective remedy against having to pay unreasonable rates charged under a carrier's tariff. Well, what if the uh, carrier had a, an effective remedy to uh, recover reparations? Would you say that, in, uh, that it would be necessary for the court to hold its hand? 
No, Justice White, we don't say that it would be necessary for the court to hold its hand if the shipper did have an effective remedy in reparations. Uh, so you would not apply, uh, you would not apply a, uh, you would not apply a primary jurisdiction where the carrier, where the shipper paid a negotiated rate that was lower than the filed rate, and the carrier then sued for the balance? Well, that is this case, of course. I know it is. But, but the reason why reparations is inadequate in this case is because the carrier is insolvent. I understand. Not I understand. Prepared. But absent, if the, car- if the, if the uh, shipper had an opportunity for reparations, you would not apply the primary jurisdiction rule. We don't think that this case presents the court with the requirement of ruling on it. I know, but what's the United States position on that? The United States position is that there isn't any need to bring the primary jurisdiction doctrine into play through a referral procedure when reparations are truly available. So you do, you do not agree with the, with the, with the uh, uh, shipper here in that regard? Well, I don't think that the shipper here is taking any position that's different from that. The whole reason why this issue is before the court today is that there is a rash of collection actions throughout the motor carrier industry in which bankrupt carriers or their trustees are culling through old tariffs and seeking to collect uh, monies that are substantially in excess of what were charged at the time, uh, and they are doing so in a way that gives the shippers no opportunity to challenge the reasonableness of those rates in a way that would be effective. You're, you're saying, uh, Mr. Dreeben, that then your, your view of the situation uh, contemplates at least the possibility that uh, the rule would be different in bankruptcy than outside of bankruptcy. Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist, we don't think that the rule has to be different depending on the fact of bankruptcy or not. The key question is whether there is an adequate remedy in reparations that would allow the statutory mechanism to work. Um, that principle is exemplified in this Court's decision in the United States versus Western Pacific, where the Court held that when the United States reparation action was time-barred, it was permitted to raise the defense of rate unreasonableness in a collection action. That underlying principle was also expressed in this Court's decision in Cranser versus Loudon, where the Court found that there was no abuse of discretion by a district court in going forward with a collection action when the shipper did have an adequate remedy in reparations. Mr. Mr. Dreeben, at at the outset of your presentation, you you referred to referral to the ICC is necessary for three reasons, and and you repeated the referral. What do you mean by referral to the ICC? We mean, Justice Scalia, the same thing that Mr. Phillips described, and this Court has used the same sort of shorthand. As, As you stated, the Court that's hearing the action in which an issue arises that can only be decided by the agency uh, it will stay its proceedings, and it will allow the parties to file a complaint before the administrative agency in order to raise the issue. But it's, it's up to the parties to, uh, to take the initiative to go before the agency and up to the agency to accept that, uh, that proceeding or not. Well, I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of a court sua sponte concluding that the issue, that the case raised an issue that it could not decide and that an agency had to decide and, and staying its proceedings to give the parties an opportunity to do so. That really hasn't been a problem in, in this case or in the pattern of cases in this industry. Shippers have been seeking to bring the issue before the Interstate Commerce Commission, and the Interstate Commerce Commission has issued a policy statement that expresses its willingness to hear on complaint precisely this kind of claim. But all we're really talking about is a stay of proceedings, which the bankruptcy court undoubtedly has the power to uh, to achieve, and the 
The issue is simply whether it's appropriate in this situation or not. That, that is exactly what the issue is. Now, the Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, in a situation like this, uh, in which bankruptcy uh, is the, the context in which the issue arises, is there, is there any issue of discretion, in your view, on the part of the bankruptcy court uh, once it determines that there is a genuine issue about the reasonableness of the rates? No. An abuse of discretion to fail to stay, in other words, if there is no question about the, the genuineness of the issue of reasonableness? Yes, it would be an abuse of discretion in every case, and the reason is, is that it would defeat the operation of the Interstate Commerce Act. What we have here are two statutory provisions that are applicable to the same transaction. On the one hand, the carrier is required to charge its tariff rate, and the, the applicable rate in this case is the tariff rate, not the negotiated rate. The other relevant statutory provision is the requirement that the tariff rate be a reasonable rate. If it is not a reasonable rate, it is not enforceable. What the carrier's trustees are trying to do in this case is to have it both ways. They want to enforce the tariff filing requirement extremely strictly. They want to do so at the expense of the requirement that the tariff be reasonable. Is there any question about there being a genuine claim of reasonableness here? that be disputed? The issue wasn't resolved at any in the lower courts at all, and we think that, that the case should be returned to the lower courts for them to address it. In general, yes, when... You said that in your brief, actually. Didn't you? That's correct, Justice Sitter. We, we do think that when a, when a significant discrepancy exists between the negotiated or charged rate that was paid at the time and the tariff rate, um, that, that that may raise an issue, and it also raises an issue of reasonableness when the tariff rate is substantially higher than what the prevailing market rate was. The ICC has recently clarified that that is the key to a reasonable rate in the current competitive market environment. So it shouldn't be very difficult for courts to be able to determine when referral is appropriate. Mr. Dreeben, what if it, what if it uh, comes out in the proceedings uh, before the bankruptcy court that the shipper, in fact, was the only shipper who was getting this special rate and that, uh, that he and the, uh, and the carrier colluded and the carrier said, look, we're charging everybody else, all your competitors, this excessive, unreasonable rate, but you we're going to give a fair rate to. You, you, you still think that, that with all, uh, well, I, when the equities are like that, you would have to send it? You, you would have to stay your hand? Yes, I think that the issue should still go to the Interstate Commerce Commission. I don't think that there's any question that in that setting, the Interstate Commerce Commission would not reward the, the shipper's violation of the discrimination provision of the Act by giving it the benefit of, of a ruling. But, but those issues and the interrelation of the statute in that question raises core questions for the Interstate Commerce Act to balance. And, and the Interstate Commerce Commission would then be entitled uh, to deference under this court's Chevron line of case. So you say the ICC might just simply refuse to entertain the proceeding for, for equitable? Uh, could it do that? Certainly, certainly. Now, I would add, Justice Scalia, that there's been no experience in the uh, markets today of that kind of deliberate discrimination and then a claim of unreasonableness being raised. We do have a fairly unique market situation today where the tariff rates that were on file uh, for a, a certain small percentage of carriers were far, far higher than the rates that were being charged in the market. And the result of this was that uh, many of these carriers, when they went out of business, did have the opportunity to come back later under their tariffs. 
The industry as a whole was not ignoring its tariff filing requirements, however. There were about a million point two tariffs filed each year that correctly reflected the rates that were being charged. And it's that body of information that provides a substantial source for saying that these higher tariff rates that were not modified don't conform to the statutory requirement of reasonableness. And that's what makes it so important to get the issue before the Commission. How do you frame the threshold test for the reference to the agency? Is it the likelihood of recovery or the insolvency of the carrier or the fact that the carrier is in bankruptcy? What's the general rule? Well, the general principle we're contending for today is that under the doctrine of primary jurisdiction, when the carrier is insolvent, the reasonableness defense would be worthless and meaningless unless there is a stay of proceedings and an it opportunity on the for the Commission. Carrier solvency. In, the, in this context, yes. Again, we think that's, that's an example of the general principle that the Court applied in Western Pacific. There, the carrier had more years to sue for an undercharge than the shipper did to sue for reparations. And the shipper, in that case the United States, if it had had to pay an undercharge, would never have been able to challenge reasonableness before the ICC. In that setting, the Court said the reasonableness defense must be referred to the Interstate Commerce Commission. Uh, the same principle, we think, applies when the carrier's insolvency or other factors preclude the, the opportunity of a shipper to raise the reasonableness issue before the Interstate Commerce Commission. Mr. Dream, uh, this is an automatic referral? I mean, no matter how outrageous the, uh, the claim of unreasonableness is, all the, all the uh debtor has to say in the bankruptcy proceeding is unreasonable rate and it, it automatically stays everything and goes over to the ICC. How long will it take in the ICC? Do you have any idea? Uh, I'll answer your second question first. It, it has taken uh, approximately two and a half years for the Interstate Commerce Commission to formulate its basic standard of what it is going to use for reasonableness claims. It picked a lead case. It developed a, an opinion. And now that that opinion has been issued, the, the Commission anticipates that it will be able to resolve these claims more quickly. Of course, if the administrative action is unreasonably delayed, then there are remedies under the APA to get the Commission to move faster. And I suppose that a district court would have discretion to say, we've given the agency a chance, it hasn't answered, and that's the end of that. Uh, now, uh, I that's, that's correct, Justice White. This is, this is what we're talking about is a process of accommodation of policies, not, not an all-one-way all rule or all-the-other-way rule. Mr. Drew, as you, your, you, oh, go ahead. You didn't answer the first question. As to your first question, Justice Scalia, whether, whether referral should be automatic no matter how transparently flimsy or false the claim of unreasonableness is, the answer to that is no. Uh, and I think that, that this is just a classic example of the doctrine of primary jurisdiction at work. The Court has to be satisfied that there is a genuine issue for the agency to resolve. Um, it, it, this does not require the, the Court to make a preliminary determination of whether a rate is reasonable. It just requires the Court to look at the kind of showing that shippers typically made. We paid this, this rate. We were quoted this rate and rates around it by several other people in the market. Um, tariffs reflect this rate, and now the carrier is seeking to charge a rate substantially in excess of what it charged us at the time. That should be enough for a court to stay its hand and afford the, the agency the chance to pass on the claim. So there shouldn't really be any difficulty with respect to courts administering a rule that we propose. Now, the Court of Appeals felt compelled to bar the procedure that we advocate in this case because of its reliance on the filed rate doctrine 
and on this Court's recent decision in Maislin. Uh, the filed rate doctrine does not have anything to do with whether a court can stay a collection action and refer a case to the Commission. The filed rate doctrine says that, that defenses such as ignorance of the tariff rate or misquotation of the rate are not an obstacle to application of the tariff rate. We agree the tariff rate is the applicable rate here, but the filed rate doctrine has nothing to say about whether reasonableness can be asserted as a defense and referred to the Commission. And, in fact, this Court's decision in Maislin. You don't suggest, though, that if the, if the carrier has charged the filed rate, that the uh, shipper can just uh, raise the defense of uh, unreasonableness uh, unless there's some claim that he can't get reparation. That, that's absolutely correct, Justice White. And, and again, the, the shipper cannot use this as a way to avoid payment of the filed rate at the time of shipment because there is an independent... Even if he thinks it's unreasonable? Even if he thinks it's unreasonable. Even if there's a pretty good case for it? That's correct. There is an independent statutory requirement that the shipper must pay at the time of delivery. But the filed rate doctrine, which reflects several statutory requirements, does not include any requirement that a shipper must pay before having reasonableness litigated when there is absolutely no other opportunity to have the issue of reasonableness. Well, what happens litigated. to the rule that you have to pay when the service is rendered uh, uh, if, the, if the shipper claims, well, I know that rule uh, uh, I'm, and the carrier is charging me the filed rate, but nevertheless, the time for reparations has passed. Well, if the time for reparations... What happens, what happens then? Then, it, then it's clear under this Court's decision in the United States versus Western Pacific that uh, the case must be referred to the Commission. Despite this uh, statutory provision that you've got to pay... Well, the statutory provision applies at the time the goods are delivered. Yeah. Now, reparations can be asserted for two years under the statute of limitations in the Interstate Commerce Act. An undercharge action can be brought for three years. Mm -hmm. So you can have the odd situation where if the carrier doesn't uh, insist on collecting the tariff rate at the time of the shipment, it can wait three years, bring an undercharge action, and then any reparations proceeding before the ICC is time-barred. If you have a negotiated rate, I, I suppose the uh, shipper complies with the pay provisions by simply paying the negotiated price. That, that's true, Chief Justice Rehnquist, and the shipper does that because that's what the carrier is billing that's him. That's what they both think they're talking about. That's right. And in this case, there was actually representations made to the shippers that the rate would be filed in the tariff, so they had a reason to expect that that was the filed rate. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Thank you. Or would have been. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Steinfeld, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Justice White, I believe the issue here is squarely raised by this idea of the petitioner and the government saying that if the carrier had billed the filed rate at the time of shipment, that there would be no reparations, rather there would be no stay in referral proceeding. That's directly from the petitioner's brief. That is a ridiculous concept because it ignores the principal provision of the Interstate Commerce Act. That is that filed rates are constructively deemed to know, that shippers are constructively deemed to know at the time of shipment what the rate is. All rights as between the parties, the shipper and the carrier, defined by the filed rate. It is ridiculous to assume that a negotiated rate bargain has legal significance. This Court affirmed that concept that it would be ridiculous to assume that in the Maislin case. 
So here we have the unusual uh, position advanced by both the government and the petitioner that I can have an illegal rate bargain, and that shipper will be free from the duty to pay that filed rate and can raise the defense of reasonableness. But the, the duty to pay the uh, – uh, uh, you're not talking about a, a, a violation of the obligation to pay when shipped. You're talking about a duty to pay the filed rate. Is that right? It's the duty to pay when shipped and the duty to pay the filed rate are the same. Uh, well, but surely the duty to pay when shipped – if there's been a negotiated rate and both the trucker and the shipper have agreed to the negotiated rate, the, that, can't, that is never going to be enforced beyond the negotiated rate. The statute in its Section 107. I mean as a practical matter. Well, as a practical matter, the shipper has constructive knowledge and they best check. I mean, as a practical matter, when the trucker agrees to ship for a certain amount and the sh uh, shipper agrees to pay a certain amount, uh, that's what the parties expect, and so that's what payment will be made, isn't that it? That may be what payment will be made, but it has no legal significance under the law and the precedent of this Court's opinions. The pay first before tendering delivery of freight is not to pay what was negotiated. It's to pay the filed rate. You cannot but that's a total abstraction in, in the real world. Your Honor, uh, whether it's an abstraction or not, it's the law, and, that, and it was defined by the Maislin Court. Any a, a misbilling has no legal significance, and the pay, the prompt pay provision of 107.43 is to promptly pay filed rate charges. It would turn the statute on its head if the prompt pay provision, if Congress said you must promptly pay whatever is billed. Congress does not say that the billed rate has any significance, Your Honor. Well, um, what do you, what, what do you do to the uh, assertions that, uh, uh, that uh, the filed rate can't be collected or need not be collected until the ICC uh, gets to pass on it if there's no reasonable way of getting reparations. I say that's um, without any statutory support. That well, what about uh, what do you do about Western Pacific? Western Pacific is a Tucker Act case. I think Western Pacific uh, supports our position for the following well, it reason. It may be a Tucker Act case, but they were just trying to collect a, uh, a higher rate than was, had been charged to the United States. Yes, but it, all parties conceded that the United States had a unique right of set-off. In other words, the United States under the Tucker Act need not pay file rate charge, would, need not be worried about paying the file rate charges. Did not have to worry the, about I thought Western Pacific uh, applied the doctrine of primary jurisdiction. Western Pacific, the doctrine of Is primary that right or not? Uh, Your Honor, part of the uh, holding was indeed applying primary jurisdiction. That dealt with the issue and, of and, and, and among other things, to have the ICC decide reasonableness. It was reasonableness as applied to determine which of two applicable okay. filed rate apl uh, applied. Justice White, but it was very significant in Western Pacific that this court said Well, they that didn't make the United States pay the filed rate. Only because, only because it didn't have to under the Tucker Act. It had the right of set-off. There was no case in, the, in this court's history that has allowed a shipper to, with impunity, refuse to pay a file rate by raising the defense of reasonableness. This court's precedent, going back to Robinson, and Arizona Grocery said that shippers were bound to pay filed rate charges. They might recover reparation, but they were bound to pay filed rate charges. And the problem presented by this case is that the Act itself has several provisions. The plain meaning and structure of the Act 
says that you must charge filed rate charges at all times. The reason is the policy is to ensure that rates be non-discriminatory, there be no undue preference, no discrimination or undue discrimination, and that rates be reasonable. The reasonableness concept is not equal dignity with the filed rate. It flows as one of the requirements and the goals of the Act. The, the goal of anti-discrimination is different from the goal of reasonableness. They're the same. How do you enforce that there be no discrimination between carrier and shipper? How, or rather, between shippers for the carrier. How do you enforce that rates be reasonable? The only way you can enforce that rates be reasonable is if the public has knowledge of them. And how was that to be accomplished? In 1887, Congress developed a statutory scheme that said publicity of rates. Once we publish our rates, the world will know. And at that point, the question presented was, well, what do you do about determining the reasonableness? In the past, the courts could adjudicate the issue of reasonableness because there was no ICC. Once the ICC was created, the courts were to stand back and not decide the issue of reasonableness, but the courts were to enforce the filed rate doctrine. And so the the policy of rate stabilization, reasonableness, and uniformity, you had the filed rate doctrine, you had the publicity of rates. Then a statutory scheme was developed. How do you challenge reasonableness in post-shipment litigation? Well, first let's start out before the shipment occurs. The rate is posted. It's not effective. The ICC can set it aside, rather can um, stay it, can in, um, through a suspension investigation proceeding for up to seven months. During that part time, the carrier cannot collect that rate. Once the rate goes into effect, however, the statute says it must be collected. This court in Arrow, Burlington Northern, and the other cases that follow, said that would be a ridiculous concept if the agency, while it was investigating the reasonableness of a rate, the statute said seven months, you haven't made your decision, rate goes into effect. Now, all of a sudden, a shipper says, well, your rate's under investigation. I'm not going to pay that whole rate. I'll pay the part that I think is reasonable. That would turn the statute on its head. The statute says after seven months, the rate is to be collected. Then what happens to the rights of the shipper? What happens is they have a right of reparation under the statute 11705B3. They pay the rate. Then they can seek to get a refund. Hence the language in Arizona Grocery, bound to pay, might recover reparations. Petitioner and the government would have it read, might have to pay if the rate is reasonable. There's just no support for that in the statute. Again, what if reparations are not available? Reparations are always available within the statutory scheme. Let's go back to the doctrine of constructive notice. Well, it may be... Reparations, maybe you could say, maybe you could say that the ICC could uh, d- decide that, what would you do, bring a suit for reparations? That's the way, the, the statutory scheme is you do bring a suit for reparations. Yes, all right. You might get a judgment, but it can never be collected. Well, first of all, we don't know that it could never be collected, because in bankruptcies there are payments, there could even be full payments. Amikai uh, American uh, Freight has paid 80 cents on a dollar you already. The, you, you think the, uh, the, uh, Shippers should uh, pay the filed rate, pay up, and then file a claim and they, like any other. Absolutely, because, Your, Your Honor, that, that's the only way to, pre- to prevent discrimination. Think of two shippers. Uh, the shipper, for example, as uh, Justice Scalia pointed out, you had the shippers that all paid this perhaps high rate, unreasonable rate, but they paid it because they followed the law. They, and there's this one shipper that colluded. And then, frankly, in this case, there's good evidence that it happened in this case, in this exact case, that there was collusion between the carrier and, and the, uh, the petitioner. 
In this case, the, uh, the shipper agrees to a negotiated rate. Comes to find out later on, a trustee is appointed and says, oh, you shall not do that. You must collect the far rate. I want to judge the reasonableness. Seven, eight years later, what happens to all of the other shippers that followed the law? Where are their rights today? Their rights are extinguished. Now we're going to reward the shipper that had not only constructive knowledge, but I would submit in our case. But that would, that would be true uh, in any action for, for reparations out of bankruptcy. If, if the uh, shipper has a right to bring an action for uh, reparations, the, the, the other shippers who paid the full uh, filed rate would, would, would be shortchanged. I, I agree, Your Honor, except for they — no, not totally, because once that reparations action was brought, the date that is filed, any other shipper that desired to file it would have that same right at that point in time. Here we're talking about a situation where they're claiming, because the carrier is in bankruptcy — and note, there's no bankruptcy exception in the uh, Interstate Commerce Act — all of a sudden rights are changed. Uh, the, the petitioner argued and the government said, well, if the carrier was solvent, we wouldn't have to worry about this. Your Honor. Who knows who's solvent tomorrow? Let's say there was a, a reparations proceeding, and, and, and instead of Carolina Motor Express, it was Consolidated Freightways, great company. And all of a sudden, during this two-and-a-half-year period that the government is saying the ICC is going to consider a reparations claim, all well, the, the, breaks the, loose. The, the, the government said the ICC took two-and-a-half years to determine what policy, it, it, how it would treat these. It didn't say it would take two-and-a-half years to decide Mr. each individual claim. Mr. Chief Justice, that, 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 I understand that. But let's, well, if you understood it, then you just misstated it. Right. Mr. Chief Justice, the point I'm, I, I'm making is that we don't know that the day after a solvent carrier that, that the government says the reparation scheme is different from when you're involving a solvent carrier. We don't know that that carrier is going to be solvent tomorrow or the next day. And we don't know that the ship is going to be solvent to pay the far rate charges years from now. The Act does not assume solvency. The Act gives people rights, gives companies legal rights. Yes, but none of the solvent carriers brought any of these lawsuits. None of them were brought until they went into bankruptcy, did they? Well, I don't know that that is exactly true. There's certainly, the majority well, of Any these cases that you know of where solvent carriers are the plaintiffs? I, in fact, I do know of one. Consolidated um, Freightways did one bring out of millions. Well, that is that's endemic of the problem. Well, what percentage of the total market do you think was paying the filed rate during the period in question here? I would say in this in this case in Carolina Motor, about 97 percent of all shippers paid the filed rate charges. Only three percent rating error was found by the auditors. Still went bankrupt. Still went bankrupt. That's one carrier, you say. Uh, I'm talking about the market as a whole. The market oh, as a whole oh, today. How prevalent was this practice? Regrettably, it, it was prevalent, but not overwhelming. The majority of shippers still pay file rate charges, and carriers... Majority pay. I would say since this Court's opinion in Maislin, there has been a reform, and certainly people have come back. But when, when things go out of kilter, that doesn't mean the Court comes back and corrects them outside of the, the, the legislative scheme. You can't come back and legislate and say, well, the problem is out of uh, kilter. That's up for Congress to do. And Congress has considered bills, and they may yet consider bills in the coming session to deal with the undercharge problem. But the statutory scheme hasn't been changed. This is a, a great note that since 1887, 1908 is the last major change to the statutory scheme involving reparations. And we're trying to carve, the petitioners and the government want to carve out an exception that goes against case upon case upon case in this court. 
A shipper is bound to pay Mitchell uh, Coal and Coke, International Coal Mining, Arizona Grocery. How did we all know that those railroad companies were not were going to be around the next time when, when the reparations award was to be made? The, the statute gives you rights, legal rights, to collect money. It doesn't ensure that there's a bank account there waiting for you at the end of the rainbow. In this situation, if, if the shippers are forced to pay reparations, they may well get back 10 cents on a dollar or 100 cents on a dollar. But they will get what other people would get, like-situated companies. You have the tire manufacturer that sold tires to the trucking company. He's sitting out there. He may have a claim. He deserves to get paid as much as the shipper who has conclusively presumed to know the rate and went into this illegal rate bargain and now wants to say, well, I didn't really know the rate. The, the more illegal rate bargains there were, the more, uh, for lower rates, the more likely it w would be that the carrier would uh, go bankrupt. I would say that's probably true. And uh, regrettably, the marketplace was not properly administered by the ICC. Uh, the ICC, as this court found, gave lip service to the fall rate doctrine during the 1980s. The utterly central provision of the act was ignored. Uh, rate bargains were encouraged. The negotiated rate policy statement was issued by the Interstate Commerce Commission. And carriers and shippers were told, don't worry about the law. And now we have a national plague of bankruptcies. Of course, under the bankruptcy law, in your tire manufacturer hypothetical, if the tire manufacturer had a claim, he could set off any amount that was owed to the company. You're saying if he had a if you're talking about equivalency, the only, only, the only, only if that be claim set off here is because it's not a post-petition debt because of the reasonableness doctrine hasn't been adjudicated yet. That is exactly right, uh, Justice Kennedy. Uh, we have we, we have no right of set off in this situation. But the tire manufacturer, if he had no other claim, if he, uh, my my position was he is a creditor because he's owed money pre-petition. And in this situation, the uh, uh, the um, claimant would have a post-petition um, debt for this reasonableness charge. But again, constructive knowledge is a doctrine that can't be ignored by this court. Only, only those companies that charged, uh, all the companies that charged low rates have gone bankrupt? Is that what happened? That's a strange market phenomenon. Not, not all, well, not all companies that have charged, uh, uh, Just the inefficient rates. ones, I gather, right? Well, I think, I think there's a mix. And the efficient ones stay in business and continue to charge people low rates. That's basically what happened. I, I think that's what the government is urging, certainly. I think that's a, a gross simplification of what has happened in this marketplace. There have been efficient carriers that have been forced to compete with very inefficient carriers. And because of, uh, the, uh, lack of um, following the, the file rate doctrine and, and, and allowing stability of rate making, those carriers also had to adjust their rates down. It would take many hours to determine what indeed was the cause of all these bankruptcies in the motor carrier industry. But certainly the uh, lack of, of the marketplace was not supposed to react that way. In 1980, there was supposed to be an increase in competition, but it, the Interstate Commerce Act was specifically written with a policy of ensuring against discrimination, and that was retained. Uh, preventing of uh, destructive competition. None of that occurred. But we still have the same statute. Well, these, a lot of these cases, but your, your position is just as strong, even if there's no discrimination at all by the uh, carrier. This is true. The, as if they charged just a market rate across the board, your anti-discrimination policy still takes over. Well, the, the filed rate doctrine itself cures many ills. Allegedly. It also I mean, creates it, it was, ills. Well, <laughs> Justice Stevens, there's certainly that, that feeling, but 
That, again, I, I would submit, as this Court said in Square D, it was a great feeling in Square D that, that, that the doctrine, the Keogh doctrine, should be abandoned. But, again, it's up to Congress to do it. In this situation, um, the, you, you have a, a Congress that, that, that knows the law, wrote the law in 1980. If the law is no longer working, it can be changed. Um, but what wasn't changed in 1980, and for a specific purpose, to ensure rate stability, there was no change in the law with regard to the posting and the publicity of rates. And there was no change in the law with regard to the reparation scheme. The petitioner and the government now, and what's most interesting, uh, Your Honors, is the government has changed its position 180 degrees in six years. We submitted attached to our brief is a brief filed by the Interstate Commerce Commission in San Antonio, uh, Southern Pacific, San Antonio, where they urged Fifth Circuit, and subsequently was affirmed in the BN case by this court, to not stay proceedings while the ICC was determining the level of the rates. Why? Because they said it interfered with their primary jurisdiction. This court in uh, Portland Seed and also in Square D had made the determination that while reasonableness determinations were being made by the agency, the rate, the legal rate still controlled, and it provided no defense to a shipper to avoid paying that rate. Because, again, following the earlier precedent, a shipper is bound to pay. I mean, this is not equivocal. It's unequivocal. Bound to pay the legal rate. So you think, uh, you, think, uh, you, you think it's fair to say that uh, our cases hold that uh, a negotiated rate below the uh, filed rate is an illegal rate? Your cases hold that a negotiated rate has no legal significance. Well, is it illegal? Is it illegal? Uh, illegal? Uh, it is. An, the negotiated rate is an illegal rate. The filed rate is presumptively legal and presumptively lawful. The fact that the rate is filed, although not charged, not charging of the filed rate does not imbue the filed rate with any unlawfulness. Well, the, the shipper should pay uh, at the time the filed rate. The shipper should pay at the time the filed rate. And he, the shippers are not without ability. This court held in Maysland that they have, and it's true, that they're watching services. You know, they execute a bill of lading, and the language on the bill of lading is very, very specific. It says, received, subject to the classifications and tariffs on file with the ICC at the date of shipment. So it's not just constructive knowledge, it's actual knowledge. They're signing off on a bill of lading that says that. Yes, but as a, as, a as, as a practical matter, the, the shipper says to the trucker, what do I owe you? And the trucker says, you owe me the negotiated rate, and he delivers the goods for that. As a practical matter, that has no legal significance. No, but the, 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 that's what, in effect, happens. So that's what happened. Well, in this case, what happened was, and this is in the record, the, the, the trucker wrote the shipper a letter saying, don't worry about our tariffs. We will handle anything that pays 90 cents a mile. So as a practical matter, in this case, the shipper and the carrier decided to charge knowingly off their rates. But it doesn't matter for my argument, because I'm going to concede that the issue of constructive knowledge covers both issues, covers both situations, actual knowledge as well as uh, not, not having actual knowledge. Uh, if, if, if the court is going to give legal significance to this rate, illegal rate bargain by saying that it provides a reparations defense out of whole cloth, one that is not allowed within the statutory scheme. You have now given legal significance to an unfiled rate. You have well, that, sanctioned. That, that, that was not my, the point I was trying to make with the question, Mr. Steinfeld. I thought you were talking about the pay, pay, when, pay when received, as, as if the, the, it was perfectly evident to, to the shipper that 
he owed more than he was actually being charged. But if that's the agreement he's bargained for, it would be quite natural for him to expect to receive the goods uh, when he paid the price he'd bargained for. Well, I, I, I think I understand what Your Honor is saying. And, and if you're taking a totally innocent shipper that, that isn't aware of the higher file rate charges, the, the position is, well, he's paid, he should get the goods. But the law doesn't say payment. It says payment for the transportation services is, is made. Now, what is payment for the transportation services? Is that just paying anything, a dollar when it should be a $1,000? No. Payment, I submit that under the statute, payment is payment of rates. The statute, 10743, says payment of rates. That's the title of the statute. It doesn't say payment of charges. It says payment of rates. Rates are only one thing, what is on file with the ICC, and that's what the Bill of Lading says, and that is what the shipper must do. The equities do not count, because that turns the statutory scheme on its head. Equities can be looked at from both sides of the fence. Well, I don't, I don't know. The, uh, certainly the ICC uh, did have a policy for until Maislin, I suppose, of, of uh, encouraging negotiated rates. The ICC had that policy, and we they were they were they were uh, regulating this industry. Allegedly, well, allegedly they were, but they, they just happened to. Turns out they uh, turns out that one of their policies uh, didn't square with the uh, statute. At least this court held. Well, this is another policy I submit that doesn't square with the statute because the commission, as I said, have just changed their view because. Negotiated rates failed. That was their answer to the problem that they created. Now, that being taken away from them, they now have a rate reasonableness philosophy, which uh, they have all of a sudden decided that contrary to their position for, for 100 years, now all of a sudden shippers are no longer bound to pay, but they might have to pay. But let us decide whether they're reasonable or not. But now only in a bankruptcy scenario, not in actual life. Well, it, it, while the carrier is ongoing, you're not going to enforce the far rate doctrine. You're going to get more bankruptcies. And, and the problem is going to continue and continue. Uh, I, I don't think you reward agencies' malfeasance by uh, then again finding another exception to allow them off the hook. Congress is going to deal with this agency. Oh, we're not talking about. We're not talking about how we should treat the ICC. We're trying to. We're talking about how to treat the shipper. That is correct, Your Honor. Who uh, is? Uh, who has been? Uh, who perhaps mistakenly relied on an ICC policy? I the way to treat to that say nothing of the carrier. Well, the, the carrier is out of business. The carrier's officers can go to jail. There are criminal penalty provisions which can be enforced, and I submit the ICC. I think finally is coming around to doing that. We've read in the press that there have been some enforcement actions. Finally, and that's the way to handle the the, the people who created the malfeasance. Post Maislin, I hope. Yes, I definitely post Maislin, uh, Your Honor, uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, but I don't know again, why the statute's been so clear for 100 years. I don't know why you limited it to post Maislin. <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that comment as well, uh, Justice Stevens. But this meaningful opportunity doctrine is an equitable principle, and you can search that act from the 10101 to the end of the act, and you'll not find anything that speaks to deciding cases differently. Uh, again, the, the principle of constructive notice has been a part of this jurisprudence since
since 19, arguably since 1915, when Mr. Maxwell wanted to go to the World's Fair by way of Denver, and now all of a sudden he had to pay more money. But you must admit the tariffs got a little more complicated after the motor carriers were regulated than before. Again, that's, I submit that's the ICC's doing. I mean, I, I, I hate to come back to that, that part. Tariffs do not have to be complicated. They can be simplified, and they should be simplified. Yeah, but they really aren't, as you well know. I mean, Mr. Phillips gave you one example, several hundred pages sometimes. Well, I would kind of dispute, Mr. Phillips, in this case. I don't want to argue too much about the facts of this case, but I was involved in this audit, and this is a very simple tariff. And uh, certainly his client receives a letter saying that I'll handle anything that pays 90 cents a mile. Don't worry about my tariffs. It's hard to question that he even bothered to open or crack a book to verify the rate. But watching services are there, and it is not that difficult. And, by the way, if it is difficult, shippers are not without remedy. All they have to do is toll, call the ICC up. They can file a complaint at any time with the agency requesting tariffs to be stricken, modified, or changed. They don't like it. Let them complain about it. But what they don't like is having to pay file rate charges after the fact, which I can understand. But at the same time, the trustees don't like the fact that they're left with cleanup costs, with unpaid wage claims. Things are a mess. And, and we are trying to simply enforce the law as it is written. We're not denying the reasonableness here, by the way. Uh, in Carolina Motor, this is exactly true. If they were truly interested in the challenging the reasonableness of the rates, they could have done so under the Bankruptcy Code 108C, extension of the statute of limitations. They had their full two years available to them. They could get every penny that any other claimant could have gotten had they chose to file a reparations case. But then that is like Western Pacific, where the time for that has expired. Now, now that the uh, plan of liquidation has been affirmed and the, and the stay has been lifted, obviously the time has, occur, uh, has uh, departed. But, Mr. Chief Justice, Western Pacific was clearly acting on its rights under the Tucker Act. Why would Congress query this? Why would Congress give the U.S. government the absolute right to raise reasonableness as a defense through a set-off procedure if it didn't have to. It had to because the United States government didn't want to be bound, as is often the case, to do what everybody else is doing. First of all, we don't have to worry about the insolvency, thank thankfully, of the U.S. government. So we don't have oh, to worry about sure. timely pay. <laughs> but th there are rules created separately for the United States of America. And in so doing, and those are the only two cases, by the way, the court should note this, that the only two cases that they rely upon are U.S. v. Western Pacific and U.S. v. Pennsylvania Railroad, both Tucker Act cases. Those are the only cases within the entire jurisprudence of this court that have provided rate reasonableness as a defense only because of the set-off provisions under the Tucker Act. And I would submit Congress which wishes private litigants to have the same rights. They sure could give it to them. Um, are there any other questions? If not, thank you very much. I would ask that the court affirm the decision below. Thank you, Mr. Steinfeld. Mr. Phillips, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, just a couple of uh, quick points. First of all, I would like to clarify the record in this case. Uh, Mr. Steinfeld suggested that uh, the shippers in this case were, were informed that uh, the rates would not be filed and therefore acted at, and essentially at their own peril. Uh, what that letter actually says, just prior to the reference to what rates were going to be charged, is I'm not sending you the tariff because it is, quote, voluminous. You need not worry about it, though, because we're going to go ahead and take care of this in a filed tariff. 
Uh, so the truth is that the, the shippers did rely. It's ultimately not terribly important to the outcome of the case, but I, it's important to set that record straight. With respect to the idea that there was either collusion or discrimination in this case, that's nonsense. This is a shipper who, uh, these are brokers, small brokers. They don't have any market power. They use 15 different carriers. All 15 of those carriers charge precisely the same rate. And in fact, if you look at uh, the carriers' uh, tariffs in this case, they have tariffs that look very similar for other shippers to the rates that they charged here. They just didn't bother to file those tariffs for this particular shipper. But what happened here is clearly just malfeasance. He talks about the malfeasance of the Interstate Commerce Commission and how it approached this case. I find it incredibly mystifying to sit here and say that we have erred because we failed to exercise constructive knowledge when it's obvious that from the beginning the carriers had an obligation to charge and collect the file rate. They chose not to do so. They charged a different rate. And to suggest that somehow at the outset of this process under Section 107.43 that we had some duty to come back to them and say, sir, you have undercharged us. You need to expect more out of us is ridiculous. Well, because uh, you've, you, that, that's a little bit of an overstatement. I thought you had conceded long ago that, uh, if, the, if, the, that if, the, uh, if the carrier had an adequate opportunity uh, to get reparations, uh, that uh, uh, the carrier could sue you uh, for the difference between the negotiated rate and the filed rate. If it is absolutely clear. Is that right? If it is absolutely clear that there is no well, risk then, uh, pursuing reparations, well, then, uh, I agree with then that. You do, uh, then you do, then you, you, you did, you had to have had a duty to, play, to pay the filed rate. I did have, no, well, I had a duty to pay the well, filed rate. Well, you couldn't rely on what the carrier said then. You, if, but, uh, if, if but the carrier the statutory scheme imposes, no, that had a duty. at the time of shipment, all, this, all the scheme requires is, and I quote the language, Justice White, only when payment for the transportation of services provided. It doesn't say the filed rate. It says the, the, the payment, uh, well, and we made I'm, that. But nevertheless, the carrier could come back and collect the filed rate from you. If may come back adequate, if, if there is an adequate reparations remedy. And, of course, the one question that uh, Mr. Steinfeld asked is, how will we know who's solvent uh, when? Well, I don't know how we'll know who's solvent in the future, but the one thing I know absolutely is who is insolvent today, and that's Carolina Motors. But isn't that the essential injustice? I mean, the essential injustice here is an, is an injustice that you concede is there in the act. That the carrier who is at fault for all of this can nonetheless come and collect the rate. And if he happens to go insolvent the next day, you're just straight, you're just straight out of luck. Isn't that the essential injustice? And you acknowledge that that is there in the statute. I acknowledge that it's there in the statute as a timing issue at the outset when the, when the payment, when the shipment is delivered and there is a requirement of payment. At that, in that circumstance, there is an injustice. But after that circumstance, in the case that we have here, Justice Scalia, where payment's made, you come back later, that injustice no longer applies because the ICC has said to the contrary. Thank, Thank you, you Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted.